This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I am Oren McIntyre. Thank you for joining me. So we have been working our way through the work of one of my favorite political theorists, Joseph DeMaestra, and his incredibly important essay, Study on Sovereignty. It breaks down all kinds of things about government what we need to understand about the nature of governments, peoples, constitutions. But today he's getting to the famous three governments by Aristotle, kind of the standard three governments of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And so we're going to be looking at those three forms of government, those three basic forms of government, and saying what is good about them, what is bad about them, what should we understand about the character of each one. And doing that with me today is, of course, the Prudentialist. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me on again, Oren. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. You've been soldiering through the series with me, and I'm sure everyone is excited to see you back. So before we get started, guys, two things. I want to remind you, The Blaze has a new website out. It looks really good. It moves really fast. It is much better than all other conservative websites because they got rid of the ads. That's right. It is ad-free. You don't have to deal with all those ugly, disgusting ads. And that's great for two reasons. One, you don't have to stare at them. And two, it means that the blaze is far less likely to get censored. It can run real stories. It can do that freely without having to worry about big tech because it doesn't have to worry about the censorship that comes along with those ads. People look at social media. That's where they get most of their news. But if your stories have been demonetized, they're far more likely to fall down in the algorithm. And avoiding that is just a great way to make sure that important stories get out to people. So if you want to check out the new site, guys, you can go to theblaze.com. I have a new uh, a new piece today that should be coming out, so you should definitely go read that. And while you're there, if you want to go ahead and support what The Blaze is doing by getting rid of those ads, you can check out the different options to subscribe there. All right, guys, we're going to jump into study on sovereignty. Joseph DeMaestro, what is the best type of government? But before we do that, let's hear from today's sponsor. Universities today aren't just neglecting real education, they're actively undermining it, and we can't let them get away with it. America was made for an educated and engaged citizenry. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on college campuses and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called the permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. They have fellowships at some of the nation's top conservative publications like National Review, The American Conservative, and The College Thinker. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next great generation of college professors. Through ISI, you can work with conservative thinkers who are making a difference, Thinkers like Chris Rufo, who currently has an ISI researcher helping him with his book. But perhaps most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that can help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at their various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, go to ISI.org. 
That's ISI.org. All right, guys. So like I said, we're looking at study of on sovereignty here, and we're getting to the point where Demaestra starts talking about the specifically the different forms of government. Famously, Aristotle had three major forms of government rule by one or monarchy rule by the few or aristocracy and rule by three, which would be kind of the polity or sorry, rule by many, which would be uh, which would be the polity. And then along with that, Aristotle also had kind of the worst versions of that. So you had the monarchy, which is kind of the good version of rule by one. And then you have a tyranny, which is a bad version of rule by one. You have a rule of a few, which is aristocracy. That's the good version of rule by a few. And then you have oligarchy, which is the bad version of rule by the few. And then you have polity, which is the good version of rule by many. And then you have democracy, which is the bad version of rule by many. So you have these three major forms of government. Now, we know at this point there are other factors involved. This, this is a simplification, obviously. But these are the classical three main categories. You can kind of put every other different kind of species of government under these three categories. And so that's how Joseph de Maistre approaches it here. The first one he uh, goes ahead and addresses is monarchy. And he uh, goes ahead and addresses that first because he says, uh, as you can see here in the quote, it can be said in general that all men are born for monarchy. This is the form of government is the most ancient and the most universal. So he says, this is the government that's going to kind of emerge naturally if you don't have anything else. This is kind of the original government that most peoples have or most, most places has have. It's the thing that most things fall into. And he says this kind of government is so natural to our way of being that we will just return to it without thinking if we're left to our own devices. And even though it's come out under much scrutiny, he makes the point that one of the reasons it comes under so much scrutiny is people tend to deny that that there's not this universality of people, that that different peoples are ruled by different forms of government. And so many people look and they want the things that come from a republic. They want the, the liberty of the republic. But he says... That is something that is only meant for a certain people, a certain few. It's not something you can spread to everybody. You can't have this George W. Bush, uh, you know, democracy in every country across the world uh, view of humanity. And so therefore, monarchy is often the answer, even though many people wish for some of the benefits of something like a republic. You can't universally apply that. And so monarchy is the most prevalent throughout history. Yeah, he's going to make it very clear in this chapter and through the rest of the study on sovereignty when it comes to respects to monarchy and its critics that uh, each civilization has a particular way that people govern themselves. Each people is different. Each nation or group of people are going to have a different understanding of how best to rule over themselves. But at the root cause, whether you are uh, a nomadic steppe people or you're out in the middle of you know Liechtenstein or whatever, you're going to come with some kind of rule by one. It is natural. And when we start asking questions, why is it natural? This is where you start having the interrogations on sovereignty or democracy or the rights and citizens of man. Uh, this is sort of that sort of spiteful mutant sort of argumentation that you see nowadays where people criticize government or hierarchy or natural order to a point where he calls, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, you know, he's still angry at God for never making him a prince or a leader of a principality, and that his criticisms of monarchy and the social contract are the equivalent of a chambermaid's uh, complaints. And so he's, he's making it very clear and established that there are 
natural orders to things that, you know, despite people judging them, as Orin and I discussed in the last episode, most people have never been towards that position of leadership. So we can't judge Nero, but if Nero acts as a tyrant, he can be, as uh, Hans Hermahapa might say, physically removed. <laughs> and it's a it's a very important thing to consider. And I mean, in the in the text itself, he he points out that um, we know how this supposition accords with history, but not that's not the point. What is important to repeat is that no people ever gave themselves a government, that every idea of convention and deliberation, that all sovereignty is a creation. It is chimerical. Uh, and he starts talking about how some nations are, unfortunately, based on their particularisms, condemned to democracy. He treats democracy as some kind of curse or a <laughs> genetic abnormality for certain people. Uh, sort of that early political science uh, HBD, I guess. But it really does illustrate to De Maistre's point, as well as the points of earlier French political scientists like Jean Baudin, that you're really looking at a order that has been, one, ordained by God, and two, is going to maintain the balance between rule over aristocratic merchant classes, the masses of people, as well as to balance out the ecclesiastical authority of the church, because de Maistre, despite being an ardent Catholic, does live in post-Reformation France and knows that there are uh, sort of this tentative, awkward, bloody history between both the reformers and the Roman church. Yeah, and that's going to be really key uh, to kind of his talk about, uh, about monarchy here. What you just mentioned is managing all these groups. That's one of the strengths that he sees in monarchy is the ability to manage all of the different social forces inside the nation to balance these different interests and to bring about the best result. But before we get into that, I want to point out a few things that he says about the character of monarchy. First, he, he talks about the difference between elective monarchies and hereditary monarchies. And he says that, that many people like Rousseau believe that election is the best way to do these things. That even in the monarchical you know, sense, you should elect your kings, not, not have the, the heredity. He sees it the other way around. He sees uh, hereditary monarchies as a solution to elective monarchies. He says a lot of people look at elective monarchies, and if you've looked at them long enough, you realize that there's these great periods of instability because there's this lack of continuity between monarchs, and there's all of this upheaval whenever one monarch is passed away or is, uh, loses their election. Or, or in some ways removed from power. And so this gap in sovereignty creates a huge crisis. And so he says the hereditary monarchy is not some weird you know, uh, uh, thing from history to be discarded, some backwards piece of technology that should be updated through elections. He says it's exactly the opposite. Cultures that had elected monarchs eventually understood that the stability of a hereditary monarch was far more valuable and he also says that, you know, we, while we might think that, okay, you might get a bad ruler, you know, that might come, of course, that's part of hereditary monarchy. He says that is no less likely in any of these other forms of government. Like there, there's nothing about the elective mechanism that makes it less likely to produce bad rulers. And so therefore we need to understand that bad rulers are a function of human nature and the fallen nature of man and not something that is exclusive to the monarchical form of government. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing that can't be understated when looking at De Maistre's breakdown of these three forms of governments. This is that, well, people will, you know, and he references his critics, he's very clear and makes it very open that, you know, even monarchy does have its problems, but out of the three that we're going to discuss, it does have the most effective capability 
at handling and managing the various groups between one another. And I mean, he says that monarchy is a centralized aristocracy in all times and places the aristocracy commands. Whatever form is given to government's birth and wealth are always placed in the first rank. Nowhere do they rule more harshly than where their empire is not founded on law. But in monarchy, the king is the center of this aristocracy. It is indeed the aristocracy that commands us everywhere, but it commands in the king's name. Or if you like, the king is illumined by the light of aristocracy. So we're really getting into that hereditary understanding that there is a landed gentry. The sons of the landed gentry are typically going to be well off. The sons of manufacturers, usually their parents up until recent history would establish a position for them to succeed it. This is why you see thinkers like Curtis Yarvin always reference the New York Times because all of its editors have been in sort of the same family for the last several decades. And it's illustrative of the fact that, you know, traditionally people who are considered aristocratic have their sons, you know, geared up and trained in a position. And when you have a monarchy, it is all centrally managed under one man that can help keep control over everything because the aristocracy has always been throughout history the, the one that leads. And I think it's also important to notice here that he's saying that even under what we would call an absolute government, the iron law of oligarchy applies, right? No one man ever rules a nation. That organization is always multifaceted. And so, yes, the, the king will upgrade the aristocracy by giving it a focal point. And he'll talk more about what that means in a second. But it is still a distributed network of power. He's still working with these people. And so it's creating a far more stable structure by which you can have that, that power run. But it doesn't mean that you just have one tyrannical guy operating in the center of that. And he's going to make this argument here. I'm just going to read some of this because I think it's really important. He says, a very remarkable truth was spoken at the opening of the Republican Lycee in Paris. In absolute governments, the fault of the ruler can scarcely ruin everything at the same time because his single will cannot do everything. But a Republican government is obligated to essentially uh, to be essentially reasonable and just because the general will once it goes astray carries everything with it and this is an important truth that for instance um uh Bertrand de Juvenal picks up on is that the the will of the people has been a key part of expanding the government in our current modern era a lot of people think of the will of the people popular sovereignty as the limiting check on government, but he makes the exact different argument. He says, when the king was one person, he could only demand what one person could demand. But when the public demands something, when the mob, when the when when the the people, someone ruling in their name demands something, they can demand the entire country be mobilized, right? And he says, this is why we get the levee on mass. This is why we get mass conscription, mass production. This is why we get this idea of total control is justified from the government because that comes from the invocation of mass sovereignty. So he says, you know, th look, if it's just the monarch and he calls for something, then he, even if he's singularly very powerful, he can't ruin everything. But the people, if you're ruling in the name of people, you must always be good because if you make one mistake, you can carry the will of the entire people with you and you can crush everything with it. He says, this observation, observation is most just. It is far from true that the will of the king does everything in a monarchy. It is supposed to do everything, and that is its great advantage of this government. But in fact, its utility is almost wholly in centralizing advice and knowledge. 
Religion, laws, customs, opinion, class, and corporate privileges restrict the sovereign and prevent him from abusing his power. It is striking that uh, kings have been uh, much more often accused of lacking will than overextending it. And that's always, it is always the king's counsel that rules. And so that's speaking to what you were talking about, Prudentialist, about how the king's, you know, monarchy's ability under the king to manage all these different social forces. You don't have to homogenize and unify public opinion. You can have a sovereign who takes these different areas of the nation, be it the church, be it mer merchants, uh, be it communities, and you can take them and have them forge these things together because they can mediate all these interests in the name of the sovereign as where that might not be available in other forms of government. Yeah, and I think the other thing that he really points out is answering both sort of Rousseau's objections and the concept of the balance of powers, checks and balances as we see them in more constitutional forms of the republic. And I think it also applies very well today when we talk about the powers of the aristocracy or just really in general the wealthy. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion on these more sort of socially democratic uh, quote unquote conservatives that will tell you about the need to check against, you know, corporate power and such, and that we need to follow similar policies out of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But I, I think um, DeMaestro offers a really good answer to this in turn, where he says, uh, let's see here. Um, here we go. He says, now, it is one of the great advantages of monarchical government that by it, the aristocracy loses, as far as the nature of things permits, all that can be offensive to the lower classes. It's important to understand the reasons, and he lies them out as the following, but he's going to tell us here that actually having a monarchy that manages and balances the needs of its aristocracy manages to ensure that most of the wealthier, most of the aristocrats don't end up doing things that are going to totally screw up the masses and get themselves killed by popular revolt. And such as he discusses that you know, since the influence of hereditary aristocracy is inevitable, um, the best can be imagined in order to deprive this influence in a way that may be too wearisome for the pride of lower classes, as it should not establish insurmountable barriers between the families and the state. None of them should be humiliated by a distinction that they should never enjoy. Listen, I'm never going to be the CEO of Apple, but at the same time, under a king, he would make sure that Tim Cook or Tim Apple, as Trump liked to call him, wouldn't be like rubbing it in my faces that, you know, we're, I'm never going to have that. In an age where there wasn't a lot of social mobility or economic mobility, the king would ensure that, hey, whatever sort of flex that you want to put on the people or try to have them working 20 hours a day is not going to work out. Because if not, these people are going to, you know, kill you. But on top of that, you're now creating national disunity and insulting the name of God, but more importantly, the king. And he says that in the order of these things will seem even more perfect if we consider the aristocracy of birth and office already made very gentle by a right that belongs to any family and to any individual that enjoys the same extinctions. They still lose out on all that may be too offensive to the lower classes by the universal supremacy, the man of the people who finds him insignificant compared to a great lord, compares himself to a sovereign. And this title of subject, which submits them both to the same power and the same kind of justice, is the kind of equality that dulls the inevitable pain of self-respect. So, again, both subject and aristocrat have to answer to the sovereign. They have to answer to the king. And because both are going to be applied under the same form of justice, uh, this sort of, you know, keeps the relationship between the lower and middle classes available. And this goes back to what Oren was saying with Bertrand de Juvenel. Once you take out that high class and you let the aristocracy be it, or you let revolutionaries or a, a crowd of people, a Politburo rule, 
you're now going to see that Politburo sort of contrive against the lower classes to make sure that no alternative power structural, the middle, the aristocrats, ever have an opportunity to do so. We saw this when it came to communism. We see this now today with our former progressive leftist form of government in the United States. And so, you know, nearly 200 plus years ago, we've got De Maistre calling out the obvious. He also points out something that I think we can observe now in our own government. He says that in republics, on the other hand, the distinction between persons exists as much as in monarchies, but it's harder and more offensive because it's not the work of the law and because popular opinion regards it as continue as a continual rebellion against the principle of equality admitted uh, admitted by the Constitution. So he's saying, look, there's going to be differences in people like <laughs> like people are different. Some people are born smart. Some people are born strong. Some people are born uh, capable and some people are not. And that's going to exist no matter what. But in a monarchy and in, with the aristocracy under the monarch, it's understood that those things are privileges of law. As where in a republic, we're told everyone is supposed to be equal. In fact, the Constitution itself says everybody's supposed to be equal. And once we start observing that people aren't equal, well, we start getting this itch of why aren't people equal? Why aren't people equal? And eventually we come to a couple different conclusions and none of them are satisfactory. In the monarchy, we could say, well, there's a law that says this is the class. But we don't want to think about why people might not be equal under a republic. And so that's why we turn ourselves inward and we start eating ourselves alive. And that's why in America, we have all these stories of racism and sexism and, you know, transphobia and like all these other systemic, you know, issues that are supposed to explain why things aren't equal. And so instead of looking at people and their differences and understanding that those are going to be part of life, we come up with all these other stories. And Demetria knew that was going to happen. He, he, he predicted that was going to happen specifically here. And he says, monarchy kind of solves this problem because you know there's a guy who's born king and you know there are people who are born aristocrats and you don't have to look for other issues or other reasons. You don't have to tear your civilization apart trying to justify inequality because you're ex or you're because you're already expecting inequality it's part of life as we're in the republican form of government inequality is a problem and you the only way to fix it is a bunch of social engineering that kind of destroys your civilization yeah and i mean this is a time of course where the the decadence of our modern day life where you can be obese poor but still have a 1200 dollars phone isn't around, but rather this is a difference between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to food or wealthy estates, who can employ you, are you self-employed as a tradesman, whatever. But it does illustrate a sort of harsher reality that we talk about in the West, and we talk about America, especially in a more income-oriented sense, but we've lost that desire to address the hard realities that some of us are not born kings, some of us are not born exceedingly wealthy, even under the lies of that anyone can be anything. And I think the Demaestra answers this quite clearly that we're always going to have that sense of resentment, but if someone can manage the balance between resentments of the masses and those that already have got it made either by birth or by some form of extravagant wealth, the, the monarch becomes the answer to that. And we've, we've lost the plot because even when we want to have someone manage the, the powerful classes and the powerful people of wealth and inequality, uh, all that we're doing is, is that we're giving it to unelected bureaucrats that by no right of birth or anything probably should be there because we do have an overproduction of elites. We do have an education system that chooses the least qualified and we see that competency crisis in full. 
And so when people say to answer these problems today under our democratic means, they mean throwing it off to committees and throwing it off to members of Congress that are instead going to be making themselves wealthy with this newfound power that they've been established in order to cater to the masses. Again, once you get rid of the king, uh, Bertrand de Juvenel's model of power kicks into overdrive real quick. So he also talks about something that a lot of people will criticize monarchy for, but he thinks is wrong. He says a lot of people say there is no uh, advance of merit under the system, right? Everything's too rigid. It's too, and he wards against that, to be fair. He says, look, that can happen. And it's really important that you allow what, uh, what Vilfredo Pareto would call a circulation of elites to occur. You need to allow new blood to enter into your elite class. You can't lock it off. You can't just say, there, so there's a certain marriage, there's a certain balance between an aristocratic privilege that allows people who have a noble birth and who are, who have the training and have uh, kind of that that continuity to be part of it. But you have to allow a, for a certain amount of circulation to come in there, a certain amount of uh, you know new blood to come in and talent to come in, or otherwise you will have problems. But he says that the monarchy actually enables this in a couple ways. The first thing he says is that the unity of the sovereignty is more compelling than kind of the spirit of the people. I'll just read this real quick because I've got it up. In the government of several, sovereignty is by no means a unity. And although parts making it up from a, uni uh, from a unity, it is far from the case that they make the same impression on the mind. The human imagination does not grasp a unity that is only a metaphysical abstraction. On the contrary, it delights in, the separa in separating each element of the unity, uh, general unity. And the subject has less respect for a sovereign whose separational parts are not sufficient above him. It follows that in kind in this these kinds of governments, sovereignty has not the same intensity or in, uh, in consequence, the same moral force. And so what he says is when you win a, a merit-based thing in one of these disunified uh, civilizations, you're not really seen as worthy. It doesn't, it doesn't transfer the same amount of kind of august respect for your achievements. However, he says in a monarchy, I actually like the imagery. He says he calls the king a talisman, a talisman of, ma of, of magic power that gives direction to the rulers. And so when the king appoints something, when he delegates a task and appoints someone to it, that elevates that person. And so if you take somebody from a lower class who is deserving and you elevate them by delegating power to them as a monarch, that has a much more powerful effect than just somebody w making a bunch of money by like starting a company in a garage somewhere. And so he says, this is a far more effective way to actually reward people and imbue their accomplishments and their elevation with an aspirational thing that will kind of pass down through the people. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Yeah, I like how he describes that the word king is a talisman, that it has mm -hmm. this magical authority to it. Reminds me of our friend uh, Carl Benjamin over at the Lotus Eaters. He has this firm belief in the concept of magic, that there are words that we just have these special value, whether it be Englishman or, or monarchy or king. And I even Joseph de Maestro, even though French uh, probably has a long history with the English, I mean, uh, that both sort of recognize that there is this desire or this power and weight and I guess, aura uh, uh, of, of monarchy that comes with it. And the, the last thing that he really does talk about is, of course, that with monarchy being sovereign and the fact that you know, a king does establish the laws and the laws that are made by men are different from the ones that are ordained by God, uh, you know, Demeister points out that the sovereign is the one that condemns people to death. And that is something that, one, no ordinary person can even begin to comprehend. That We can say, oh, I wish that guy had, you know, died or whatever, but it's a lot different than to be the one that orders the execution. And the thing about the monarch that De Maestro points out is, is that because he manages the law and he is in charge of the law to enforce it both upon the subject and the aristocrat, that what is now labeled a crime is in this ruler's hands. And you want that to be in the hands of one rather than by a committee and bickering where this can lead to like what you had said, the popular masses revolting or leading to mass conscription, mass war, etc. If one man can determine it and it is now obeyed by Christian law, as he points out, you have someone now who is far more effective to do it. Um, and he says that among us ideas are different. If, if a king in his private authority kills a man, European wisdom will not counsel retaliation or rebellion, but all the world will say this is a crime. And on this point, there are not two ways of thinking. An opinion of it is so strong, protects us sufficiently. So one, we're already aware that the king can be held to law and we can you know, remove him if need be. But secondly, that abuses in regard to power, um, each monarchy in Europe has its own particular traits, for example, he says. But uh, we always see, and this is where he gets to throw out my favorite word, the physiognomy of government. Um, you know, we, we each one has their own great character and monarchs have the capability to enforce it, to condemn men to death. And it's going to be different on each people. And he's sort of acknowledging that critics of monarchy, they always say, oh, a king is this, a king is that. And it's very, very blanketed. It's very universal. It's very generalized. But De Maestro is pointing out sort of the nuance here that you don't see from sort of critics of monarchy that each people, each character of yeah. our government, of our monarchy is innately unique to that people and it makes it harder to judge it and makes it more resilient for each you know person or nation yeah that's really critical again it's something that i think he talks about over and over again uh, whether it be constitutions or monarchies or you know folkways laws uh, whatever it is he says you have to take into account the particularities of a people you cannot universalize this stuff you cannot say the king is this all the time in every place no it will necessarily change will necessarily be different we cannot judge it just looking at one example and try to to broaden that to everything and i think that's a really critical thing it, it goes against almost everything that modern political theory tries to do modern political theory wants a grand unifying theory i think that's that's part of the faustian nature i think that's part of liberalism i think what we want is is this is this grand unifying theory that will bring it everything under its rule and the answer of Demaster over and over again is no, you can't do that. That doesn't work. And any time you try to do that, you will fool yourself or destroy something in the process. He also talks about despotism here in a way that I think is really important. He explains that monarchies are usually criticized for their despotism, but also for their weakness simultaneously. 
they'll, they'll say that you know the the monarch is a tyrant but the monarch is also uh a uh is also too weak and he says the reason you see this dual criticism simultaneously is that when people say that the monarchy is too tyrannical or it's too despotic what they're saying is that the monarch is not controlling the people he has delegated authority to and those people are crushing the average person those those aristocrats or those officers that have been delegated to they're crushing the average person and the king is not protecting the people because the king's job and again this is something that uh, Bertrand de Juvenal recognized the king's relationship is always directly with the people it is the king that is supposed to to protect the people from the aristocrats and so if he's not doing that then he's failing at his job and so he says he says if you think the mon- if people are saying the uh, monarchy is too uh, is too despotic then it is usually because it is not strong enough to control its aristocrats and the people cannot fight back against those delegated authorities. And so that's why you see it called too weak, but also too uh, despotic simultaneously. And he has this great passage about the nature of man that I want to read here because I think it's just so good. How many faults uh, power has committed and how steadfast it ignores the means of conserving itself. Man is insatiable for power. He is infinite in his desires and always discontented with what he has, what he has loves only what he has not. People complain of the despotism of princes. They ought to complain about the despotism of man. We are all born despots from the most absolute monarch of Asia to the infant, to the infant who smothers a bird with its hand for the pleasure of seeing that there exists in the world a being weaker than itself. There is not a man who does not abuse power and experience shows the most uh, abominable despots. If they manage to seize the scepter are precisely those who rant against despotism. But the author of nature has set bounds to the abuse of power. He has willed that it destroys itself once it has gone beyond its natural limits. And I think that's such a beautiful thing saying even the infant that kills a bird uh, you know, just to know that it's stronger than something else. That this this is not a fault of kings. You know, we hear this this idea that uh, that the powerful, the, the he who seeks power, is always going to be the, no. He says everybody abuses power. This is human nature, and so he says embracing this aspect of monarchy is not a weakness. This is an understanding of just human nature itself, and it can only be bound by this very powerful system. Of, of an understanding despotism and until you put it in the bonds of its oath to the people and to god and it's you know and, and everyone that re- kind of relies on it people the man's desire for power will always drive it to seek something weaker and crush it yeah absolutely and i think that this is where again you see that influence from uh, Jean Baudin, who wrote six books on the Commonwealth um, during the time of the Reformation in the 1500s. And, you know, he sort of categorizes uh, monarchy into sort of three forms. You have royal monarchy, uh, which is sort of what we see De Maistre defending here. But then you also have despotic or um, tyrannical forms uh, of monarchy. And despotic monarchy is always someone that is going to be um, enjoying the you know, fruits of being able to to rule over others and to seize them because they are stronger. Um, you know, despite the fact that uh, we can be despotic and we can rob and we can go over it, um, we're also likely to be 
uh, a prince or king that has the right over his possessions, but then robs them and then steals them and doing so because well, they can, because they're strong and they control these things. And, and for Demaistra, this is a natural part of man. This isn't part of the king, but it does illustrate that unless you have, uh, rather to have one person do it than to have a multitude, a mob, of equally despotic people ruling over you. And if we, you know, fail to acknowledge that inside all of us is a fallen nature in the Christian sense, then all we're doing is we're criticizing an office, a talisman, and not man itself. And too many times that that criticism uh, misses the mark when it comes to critics of monarchy. So the next uh, section here talks about aristocracy. And this one is much shorter for the reason that basically he just describes aristocracy as a monarchy without a king it's a it's a it's a, a government in which you have you still have the aristocracy you still have the natural uh kind of ruling elite but there's no central uh sovereign to kind of bind it all together and he says of course this has its own strengths and it has its own weaknesses he says this is going to be a wiser government anyways but he says it's going to have less vigor because you don't have that centralizing force you don't have that person to drive these things forward to kind of give a spirit and animating uh, force to the people and, and to manage these different uh, parts inside the aristocracy. Very interestingly, I just want to want to uh, stop on a, a point real quick that he makes. He says uh, he talks about the natural aristocracy of physical strength. He said, this is just something that's going to emerge. You're going to have hereditary uh, aristocracy because those people are just physically stronger and more talented. I thought this was interesting because, of course, it feels like we don't have that anymore, right? And and I think that that's a critical problem. We've seen the the overproduction of elites, especially when it comes to foxes, as you mentioned earlier. We have these the what what uh, what Pareto would call these class one uh, residues uh, that are basically all about combinations and intellect, and we see very little lion anymore. We see very two class very few class twos coming to power and ruling. And I wonder if, you know, Prudentialist, what you think about, like, basically the fundamental relationship of man to government is in many ways, I think, now kind of skewed, maybe permanently, because this this natural hierarchy that always had to observe of the strong, the physically strong, has faded away due to industrialization, due to modern warfare, these kind of things. And we're we're kind of getting to the edge where that might be coming back. I think uh, I, th I think people are starting to realize that technology will not solve the problem of combat uh, in the way that that many people thought it was. But for a very long time, we've got to delude ourselves into the idea that we don't have to observe the hierarchy of physical force, and that somehow that's low and dirty and base, and the aristocracy of of intelligence is the only thing that matters. Yeah, there's this. I don't know. I mean, I think it's very clear that we can't go back to any sort of traditional semblance of monarchy. I, I think that as it's been clear throughout history that lest there is a complete collapse of civilization, uh, it's very hard to revert back to older forms of, of government. There's sort of always the technology will adapt and evolve with how we rule. And there is this sort of strange sensation to know that the media or the internet has created this vast level of disintermediation for the masses for the people where it's no longer walter cronkite i mean our last real television host like that people would listen to or give the most attention to tucker carlson isn't even on tv anymore he's on twitter 
And to me, it sort of illustrates that our relationship to government is permanently skewed by technology rather than it's going to solve for it. Because now any Joe Schmo, and this can both be a good thing, but I also think it has its negative consequences to where anyone with a Twitter account, anyone with a social media platform can garner a large enough following, a parasociality, a parapolitics that can corrupt people very easily into their own sort of despotic, petty idea of what power is when it comes to clout or a following, but also at the same time that it blurs the distinction of, well, who's really more natural and fit to rule. I think that we've really done away with that in some instances by the collegiate example, because we have an ideology that selects for aristocrats. We have selection pressures that want people, uh, as C.S. Lewis would write, you know, to, to castrate the geldings and then bid them to be fruitful, whether that be women freezing their eggs and staying in work until they're 45 or um, picking out individuals that don't have a family and just work themselves to death. And not in any higher purpose or sense whether it comes to, say, like a monastic or a, a tradesman that's just never had the time. It's people serving a power structure that gives them the semblance of power. So if anything, we've really gone away with the old aristocratic class. And instead, our circulation of elites has, by a mixture of immigration, progressive takeover of institutions, and a generalizing form of progress that enables any sort of old guard action to never really come to fruition. It allows us to have a relationship to government where if you're part of the uh, of a certain group of people, you're not going to be getting very far lest you adopt or you're already part of an old aristocratic family. I mean, you see this really well with California. Um, it doesn't matter how anti-white things may get in California or how anarcho-tyranny gets in California. Uh, Gavin Newsom and people like Nancy Pelosi and their children and their grandparents and parents all descend from an aristocratic family long before California turned into what it was in the 1990s onward. And so I think that what we're really beginning to see is a relationship to government where there's no trust, there is no semblance of majesty Otherwise, it gets used as a platitude. I mean, we saw this with the January 6th stuff, right? That, oh, well, it's our sacred temple of democracy. And I don't think anyone feels like that anymore. No one has that sense of history or grandeur appreciation of even the magic that once came with American democracy. And I, so when reading De Maestro, and I've been reading this section on aristocracy again, it's just, well, who are these families and who are they to be? when anyone with money can immigrate, come in, take over a, a tech sector, give a bunch of money somewhere, and the people that are supposed to represent you, and this all goes back to De Meister's criticisms of democracy and the National Assembly, you know, instead we're being ruled by foreign money, we're being ruled by either the young or just puppets for the media, the inexperienced types, AOC comes to mind as uh, De Meister talks about, well, what would you rather have, a 20-year-old king or a bunch of 20-year-old senators? Take your pick. I'd pick the king. And it illustrates to me that we're now living in a world where if you're outside in the periphery, where, like I am, I live in the heartland, I live in flyover country, my ability to have influence on government, I acknowledge that I probably never will and won't, and that's fine. Um, but I think because we have the media and our technology, our relationship to government and our relationship to the perception of the masses leads us in this weird trap of performative quasi-populist just rage bait and yelling at the TV that doesn't accomplish much while we don't do anything about the institutions themselves. It's easier to complain than it is to do anything else. But that, 
rambling too long. No, I mean, I mean, this goes back to something again that he says in in this about aristocracy because he he attacks Rousseau's idea of the elected aristocracy, right? And he says, no, the for the same reason that the hereditary monarchy is better than the elected monarchy, the hereditary aristocracy is better than the elected, and for the reasons you gave that it ties people to a certain continuity, that it doesn't open you up to average, you know, random people coming in and being manipulated. You, you again, you don't have that break in continuity. You have people who are deeply invested. Also, very interestingly, he says that it's really important to have a mix of the young and the old. He really emphasizes that inside the aristocracy, that that one of the values of it is that it brings the young and the old together. He says the young are are to do good and the old are to prevent evil, which I think is a really interesting observation. The young have the vitality, you know, and this is what they're also the rule he says for the king, right? That they are the ones that are going to do good. They're going to feel compelled to take action. They're going to be the ones that have the vigor. And again, we often dis- we often downplay that in our society. As, as much as we are, we are obsessed with youth, we often, while being obsessed with youth, actually uh, dismant- or discard vigor, saying that that is not valuable. What we, all, what we want is, is always to be you know, deliberating and waiting and thinking about everything. But he says, no, there's a there's a vitality to the young, a vigor to the young, and they're going to do the good. And then there are the old and their job is to prevent evil because they have the wisdom and they have the patience. They don't have the vigor. They don't have the vitality to bring about the change that the young do. But they do have the ability to temper that with wisdom because they've seen the evil. They know what could come. And so they can encourage the young when they are doing vigorous things that are valuable, but they can also slow things that might be done too quickly that would bring about evil. And so they, they, there's this role of both the young and the old, and uh, that, that should constantly be mixed into your aristocracy. Yeah, and this is where, for the rest of this little section on aristocracy, we get to see a, a large sort of refutation of Rousseau, and it comes back to that natural order, the, the hierarchy of peoples, and the importance to recognize that things develop, they do take time, and you do need that combination of young and old working together, the wisdom of the experience to temper the vitality and the impulsiveness of the young. Uh, this is why, I mean, anyone reads the the books of what gets called wisdom in, in, in the Old Testament, you know, whether that be, um, you know, Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or the wisdom of Sirach and so on, you're, you're going to notice that it is fathers or fatherly patriarchal figures uh, offering advice and commands to their sons. And uh, this is the same thing that we see being pointed out by De Maestra. And when he goes on, he's sort of cr- criticizing Rousseau and his complaints over Venice, saying that, oh, you know, hereditary aristocratic government is detestable. The esteem of the world accorded for several centuries to that of burn in no way contradict my theory. For what makes this government not bad is that it is excellent. Oh, profundity. And he's quoting Rousseau when he says this about the judgment on Venice is no less uh, curious. Venice, he says, has fallen into hereditary aristocracy, which has so long been a dissolved state. To which de Maestro responds and looks at the history of Venice and looks throughout the Middle Ages. And he had says, and I think quite poignantly, that Rousseau, in saying Venice had fallen into aristocracy that is hereditary, proves that he knows very little about the growth of empire. If he had known, instead of fallen, he would have said achieved. 
while the Venetians were only unfortunate refugees, while the Venetians were only unfortunate refugees, living in shacks on those islets one day would support many palaces. It is quite clear to their constitution was not yet mature. Strictly speaking, they had none since they did not enjoy absolute independence, which had been contested for so long. But in the year 697, they already had a leader powerful enough to have given us to think that he was sovereign. Now where there is a leader, at least a non-despotic leader, there is a hereditary aristocracy between this leader and the people. The aristocracy formed itself impeccably like a language matured in silence. Finally, at the beginning of the 12th century, it took on legal form and the government was what it must be. Under this form of sovereignty, Venice filled the world with its fame to say the government degenerated by thus attaining the natural dimensions of said government. Rome degenerated when the institution of the tribunes, as I've noted earlier with Cicero, gave legal form to constitutional power, but disordered the power of the people. So when we start writing down our constitutions, as we mentioned earlier with Lycurgus and Sparta, once we start writing or giving down laws and assemblies to other people, we disorder them because we finally disrupt what is natural, that people will associate with those that are a collection of aristocrats that are in charge, establishing the good and imbuing authority, that talisman, that magic, that faith, that power, to eventually a sovereign, a ruler, and in doing so, actually having a hereditary aristocrats that are socialized and trained in values and understand their role in society and are aware that heavy is the head that wears the crown and heavy is the head that those that suggest power to that king. Once you get rid of that and once you establish a constitution, a national assembly or democracy, you have disrupted the natural balance between the relationship of father and son, aristocrat to the king, the king to his subjects. And in turn, you really just as... Demaestrius said in other works that you would spit in the face of God himself. So the final form of government, of course, that he talks about here is democracy. And, you know, he, he already mentioned this a little bit in the aristocracy uh, chapter, but he says, basically, there is no such thing as pure democracy. The idea of a pure democracy simply does not exist. The people cannot be sovereign over themselves. And so when we're talking about democracy, we're really talking about an elective aristocracy um and and so he uses the the phrase republic now most of the time in this and this is i think important because again a lot of americans every time i talk to conservatives they love to say this we're not a democracy we're a republic and it's like okay explain the difference to me they don't know right so like that he, he's saying that of course you're not a pure democracy. There has never been a pure direct co democracy constantly. You know, the, 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 you know, may, maybe it happens for a second, but, but but that's basically just mob rule. There there is always a at mo at, at best some form of voting, some form of representation. There, so so if you say we're not a democracy, you're a representative republic. You're just saying we're the only type of democracy that actually works, which means you're still a democracy. You're just you're just calling yourself the more the more reasonable form of democracy. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But understand that calling yourself a representative or a constitutional republic, you're you're just a democracy. That, that, that's what that means. So he says, okay, so there's, there's no such thing as a pure democracy. But then he says, okay, so what is a democracy? He says, it's an association of men without a sovereign. And he makes clear, there's no purely voluntary association. We love to think about that. Again, that's the liberal idea. Everything is voluntary. The the, the destruction of all bonds not continuously chosen right that 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 it's all about getting rid of that and we instead of having 
you know, uh, kings that are they're put in place by God or by nature or, or you know, through some kind of virtue of, of birth. Instead, everything is entered into voluntarily. We don't we don't have a, a government. We have a social contract. You know, we we come from the original position of the state of nature. We have these arbitrary contrived things that allow us to believe that we through our own volition, we have created the government. We, we have given it. Uh, it's it's so uh, it's a uh, validation and his answer is like no i'm sorry like that that's not a real thing uh there is no purely voluntary association he says but what you can have what you can have is this sovereignty that is supplemented or that is supplemented by the public spirit and he says this is the critical part of the republic this is what allows a healthy republic and he does again he does believe there are healthy republics, even though, like you said, it's not his favorite form of government. He says that this can be the right form of government for people who are born to it. And he says, the and, and he gives them some, some credit here. He says the critical part of the public spirit is the wisdom and virtue of the people. He says, if you do not have a virtuous and wise people who are uniquely talented and uniquely virtuous, then you cannot have a republic because you have to have that public spirit. That public spirit has to stand in for the for the binding association that the monarch would usually create. And he says so. He says it's very critical. And of course, our founders knew this. Again, you know, the Constitution it's only made for uh, for virtuous people. It's it's not good for any other. But this is the thing that everyone wants to discard. Even conservatives want to discard this. They say, well, we can just export democracy to everybody. No, you can't. Why? Well, because they're not virtuous. And they're not particularly talented. And if you want to have, if that's, I mean, that's literally what he says here. You have to have virtuous and talented people. And if you don't have those vir uniquely virtuous and talented people, then you can't have the public spirit that binds people together and makes a republic work. And so he says that's the key thing that stands in in that association is that public spirit built on the virtue, the morality, and the and the quality, the talent of the people. Absolutely. And I think that the, the key thing that you, you'll see in this little section, if you have the, the text in front of you, if you have a, a copy of it, you'll, you'll notice that De Meister is just like, listen, uh, the idea of a pure de democracy, this is a philosopher's wet dream. It's nothing that's actually real. You understand why in previous sections of these uh, studies on sovereignty that De Meister is basically calling for just like a total shutdown of philosophers until we can find out what the hell is going on, as, as Trump would say. But, um, you know, neither does, and this is where he's also going against sort of anarchists. He says, you know, pure democracy doesn't exist. Neither does the state of purely voluntary association. One starts only from this theoretical power to understand. And it is in the sense that one can affirm that sovereignty is born at the moment when sovereign begins not to all people, but it is strengthened as it is less than all of the people. Um, and this is where he starts arguing that once you try to... Um, articulate like oh well we can have a, a stronger authority but still have a democracy all that you're doing is, is that you're still weakening the power of the sovereign and you're only making government uglier and we get back to the, this physiognomy checks of, of various governments and various mixed forms of monarchies and, and de democratic institutions alongside of them once this begins to happen eventually one over the other is going to win out whether it be the the popular masses as we saw in the french revolution as we've seen every time we've sort of expanded our, our voting base uh, and the power of the executive in the sovereign gets decreased uh, further and further. And he says, therefore, a Republican people 
uh, a people less governed than any other, we understand that the working of sovereignty must be supplemented by public spirit. And this is what Oren was talking about. If you don't have that public spirit, if you don't have the ability to recognize where authority lies or who's the actual sovereign person, that spirit can be whipped up into a frenzy. It can be whipped up into the most useless things imaginable under these sort of philosophical ideas of egalitarianism or the pursuit that every person can be a senator or anyone can be this, that, or the other. And all that you do is that you erase, lessen, and destroy the natural bonds between aristocrats, the people, potential kings and sovereigns, and you're lessening the ability for the law itself to have any power over anybody, leading into a more anarcho form of despotism of democracy, which again, we've seen throughout history and especially now in the United States. That's right. Yeah. And he, he talks about some more characteristics of democracy. He says, you know, that, that the Republic can be the most extreme good and the most extreme bad that the, the, he says it can reach higher heights than monarchy, but it also quickly reaches lower lows. He also says it's really critical for Republics to stay small. So this is a city state thing. This is this is not something that you say expand to a multi-continent empire across, I don't know, say North America. Uh, and so, you know, he says that this is something that because of the nature, because you have to keep that public spirit, these, you need to build those associations. And for those public spirits and associations to stay vital, they must stay tight and small. So if you're going to adopt the Republican form of government, if you're going to be a democracy, then you should not expand into an empire. He says, is, he says republics are, are uh, terrible empires. They, they, they form terrible empires because, they, because once that association has been expanded beyond kind of the natural polis of uh, kind of the, the voting public, you're, it's going to break down. You're going to see interests enter in that should not be there. He also believes that justice in a republic is usually not as good. It, because it, it vacillates again between weak and brutal because it's always trying to respond to the will of the people uh, as where the monarch is, you know, trying to mete out a justice. His position is secure. He can be more fair. He says that the, the, you know, the democracy is constantly catering to the masses, which means that sometimes it will be too weak to those that are, that are garnering praise from the masses and it will be too brutal to those that the masses are hating. And then finally, he says that, uh, democracies need to be tempered by the aristocracy because the people choose bad leaders, right? He says, he says the people are just going to choose bad leaders. You need to have that filtration mechanism. And again, this is something that the American founders knew, which is why democracy was limited to a very small group of people in the United States when it was founded. And it only applied to one half of one third of the branches of government. You only directly elected Congress. Senators weren't directly elected. Your your you know, judicial branch was obviously a, a, was appointed, and your uh, uh, and your um, sorry, I suddenly have forgotten the branches of government. Uh, <laughs> so okay, so of most of our leaders, yeah, and your executive, your 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 president has been was obviously not directly chosen either. He was uh, he was uh, chosen by the electoral college. So there was a lot of buffer, a lot of aristocratic buffer between the, the public will and the actual rule of the government built into the original constitution. But we've stripped a lot of that out of our current system. And of course you can see that the left is already, you know, conti is, it continues to want to destroy what's left. They want to destroy the Supreme court. They want to destroy uh, the, the electoral college. And so they continue to, to eat away at this base of the aristocracy 
so that they can get to directly to the will of the people and rule by manipulating the will of the people without that aristocracy in between to provide a buffer. Yeah, and this is another important thing that he points out when it comes to uh, the size and scope of government. But he also refers to those that are elected or, or quote, you know, citizen sovereigns. And he talks about this when it comes to, to Athens. When Rousseau tells us in the pre uh, preamble of the social contract, then the quality of a citizen of a free state is that he is part sovereign. A sudden smirk breaks out in the most benevolent leader. You only count in a republic as far as birth, alliances, and great talent can give you influence. A simple citizen is effectively nothing. The men of this class in Athens were worth so little that they refused to attend to the assembly. Those who so refused had to be threatened with a fine, and they had to be, prom be promised a salary, or to put it better, an alms of the three obols to induce them to come to the square and make a quorum prescribed by the law, which must have assumed endlessly in their um, meetings. Uh, in the comedies of Aristophanes, one often finds jokes about these rulers at so much procession that nothing is better known in the history of these uh, citizens. And so what he's referring to there is just that all these people would, they had to be promised a salary. They actually had to do it. If you're sovereign and you're part of the system to vote and it matters so little because, you know, you're anyone else can outvote you or everyone else has the same title. It's no one's special, you know, like if we're all, if we're all sovereign, then nobody's really sovereign and you have to be coerced to actually vote and do so. And then make a salary. And then you start robbing the treasury and you just spend your time making money constantly, just debating back and forth, these lofty ideas in the assembly or in a Congress or in a magistrate or legislature. And uh, again, this is why it only works with a small selective group of people with limited power, limited authority, limited uh, franchisement, because if not, nobody cares, and less and less people are likely to be inclined uh, to vote. And this is why even in America, our voter participation rates are never above 60%. More, it's somewhere a little over half the country really cares, and the other half doesn't at all. So finally, he kind of wraps up this study of democracy by saying a few things about elite theory. Really, he, he, he gives us our, our proto-elite theory. He says, it's very clear that the people do not influence elections. It's the elites that influence elections. And so when we talk about elections, even in a republic, we need to understand that they're actually the will of the aristocracy. They're a battle of the aristocracy over the collective will of the people. It is not actually something that's reflective of the, the, the popular sovereignty. He also says that due to kind of the, the necessary type of people for a republic because a republic needs a very virtuous and very talented people an amazing degree of virtue and talent they're short-lived he says he's just they're, they're just naturally short-lived even though they might be the right form of government for the time and and this is something he said earlier uh it, we we talked about in earlier episodes he said look the government there is a right answer to what is the right form of government but it's different for each people so it's it's not relative. There is a right answer, but it, it depends on ref, reflective of what the people are like. And it will change over time because people will change over time. So you might have been best governed by a republic at one point, and you might be best governed by another form of government at another point. And he says the reason for that, especially with republics, is you have to have a, a very high degree of talent, a very high degree of virtue. You basically need to you need to be. Uh, you need to be in Galt's Gulch. You, uh, you need to be in Ayn Rand's perfect civilization for the republic to work you have to have that that shining moment of everyone being competent and everyone being virtuous and everyone being self-governing and if you have that high concentration of that in your populace then yeah you can be a republic for a while but don't expect that to go on in perpetuity it's it's a short-lived 
form of government because eventually that virtue does atrophy. Eventually you will lose that, that degree of excellence. And when that happens, you will no longer be effectively governed as a republic. So he says, because of the nature of republics, because of the nature of a good democracy, a republic, is that it is short-lived by its, by its uh, necessity, and it has to be small in order to keep its quality. Then he says, Republican government can't really be a universal government. Democracy can't really be a good universal government because it is by necessity only for a very specific, virtuous, moral people and only for the limited time in which they maintain that role. And it has to stay small in order for them to maintain it for any generous amount of time. And so I think you might look at America today and say, that's an amazing run. You had an amazing quality of people and as and it made sense as a republic for a good amount of time, but you've expanded too far. You've fallen away from these aspects and that might not continue to be the universal good for you to be ruled in this manner. Yeah, and he really does make a point both by refuting and going point by point with Rousseau's social contract, but also referring back to the Athenians and other small democracies is, is that Listen, a lot of the, the perfect forms of governments for gods are going to be proposed by people who are by nature are fallen. These kind of ideas where everyone is sovereign, they don't live very long. And when you try to expand upon them, you spit in the face of history that every great empire, which is the natural course of all nations and peoples to try and pursue, even if they don't succeed or not. Uh, you know, he even calls out Rousseau being a petty, small-minded man for not wanting to be like these great men, not wanting a large and massive empire, but instead pursuing a more democratic form of it and acknowledging that the social contract must exist for his ideas of man in a state of nature. And so, you know, Demeister really does point out that these things aren't meant to last. And when they do, they inevitably decay because you blur the line between aristocrat, sovereign and citizen. And even then, when that happens, it falls into anarchy. And eventually, you just start right back from sort of that evolutionary beginning. And eventually, a king and a sovereign will arise. So why would you want to destroy what is already natural, existing, and orderly and you know, pursue a democratic form of government where everyone's a sovereign and theoretically, everyone could be in the Congress for a year. You just have to wait you know, 10,000 years for every citizen in America to do it. And so... Demeister is very clear to point out that, you know, democracies, again, that very classic argument you see all the time in political science, first year students, uh, great on paper, awful in practice. But Demeister is just like any examination of the history of antiquity and in the Christian world really does illustrate that these things do not work on scale. All right, we're going to go over and switch to the questions of the people. But before we do, Mr. Prudentialist, what should people be looking for over in your channel? Sure. So I just put out a new video called Bottleneck Wars that sort of looks at, um, you know, genetic bottlenecks as well as civilizational ones and some thoughts on some recent science fiction um, in American pop culture. Alongside that, just find me over at thepotentialist.substack.com. I've got a really great article called Marshall McLuhan's War, which sort of analyzes the media landscape and how we perceive the news as well as the current conflicts going on. Uh, in Israel and Ukraine. So just find me there at credentialist.substack.com, YouTube, anywhere else. Just look for that frog profile picture. Yep, enjoyed that recent video, guys. Make sure that you go and check that out. All right, so Tom here for 10 pounds, just dropping a, a, a nice donation. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate you watching and supporting. Let's see, John Saxon here for two pounds. Who decides what is and isn't tyrannical? All right, so... 
This is one of my favorite questions. Who decides? And the answer is whoever has power. <laughs> this is the answer. This is always kind of a thing people get into. It's like, but who decides what religion is right? Who decides what's ty tyranny? Who decides? The powerful. That's the answer. Uh, you know, the, the men with swords or men with the ability to move men with swords. This has always been true. This will always be true. And when we throw out this question of like, who's going to decide those things? Like there's a natural understanding. I think there's a certain amount of, and again, this is going to go from people to people, which is what Demaster would say, right? You might have, in, in, you know, he, he kind of invokes the idea of the Asian God King, right? So in, in, in these kind of Asian despots, they're, they're going to be able to wield way more power over their people because that's just kind of a natural thing that has produced itself in many of these uh, civilizations. There might be other people in England or, or, or in, in America that would allow far less power to be exercised over them. And they're going to either hit that moment of tyranny where they're going to push back once power has been exercised over them, or they're not, and they're going to allow that to continue. And guess what? That's when you'll decide what's too tyrannical, which is why it's really hard when we sit around and say the United States or other European countries, and we look around the world and we say, hey, that place is despotic. That place is tyrannical. Well, maybe by our standards, but maybe the people there prefer to be ruled that way, or maybe they don't, but it's not something that we are always able to understand because we're just assuming that our values, our understanding of power, our understanding of government is universal, but it's not. And that's kind of Demaster's main point is, you know, that, that this is going to vary from civilization to civilization and looking for a universal standard of what is tyrannical or what's the exact amount of government power, the exact amount of you know input from the people that's going to just work for every single human across the globe is to, uh, to not understand human nature. And that's always going to lead you to ruin. Yeah, and to expand on this, let's let's look at one of the larger influences on that of De Joseph de Maistre, which was Jean Baudin just a few hundred years earlier. I mean, he categorizes monarchy or sovereignty really into three areas. You have royal, tyrannical, and despotic. And with tyrannical monarchy, he argues that mon tyrannical monarchy is one where a monarch tramples underfoot the laws of nature, that he abuses the natural liberty of his subjects by making them slaves, stealing the property of his own, um, you know, uh, unlike the Greek word for tyrant, which was an honorable term, um, you know, now it signifies a prince that has come to power without the goodwill of his subjects, that the people who allow to voluntarily give up authority to this sovereign, whether it be by the aristocrats or the subjects, uh, this is someone that just steals, robs, plunders, kills, murders, rapes for himself. And this is something for us to sort of understand back to what Demeister is saying that, listen, we're not kings. We can't really judge the guy but when it comes to the law, which is applied both to the people based on their character or their nationality or ethnicity, but also because it is applied equally to aristocrat and uh, subject, we too can look at the king and acknowledge that what he is doing is criminal and thus tyrannical. And when that line of tyranny is crossed, as de Meister has said, you can kill Nero. You can physically remove him. So we've got... Another just straight up donation here from Belial Bradley for $5. Thank you very much, man. Very much appreciate that. Uh, we've got uh, JDL41 for $20. Enjoy your content. I rarely get to watch live. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate you coming by live when you can. I appreciate you contributing when you can. Of course, all of these episodes, guys, are available on Blaze TV. You can watch the VODs on YouTube and Rumble and Odyssey. You can uh, listen to the audio on the Orm McIntyre Show on, on all your podcast networks, Apple, Spotify, all that stuff. 
So you can always catch it, you know, later. And I'm sure many of you do, but it's great to have people live, of course, because we get to answer questions. You guys get to chat, you know, we get to interact and it's really nice to have that community atmosphere. It's a nice thing about the show. Yes, I do, you know, the, the episodes that are just the interviews or we do the episodes that are just, just me doing the, the essays, but it's really nice that we have the live streams and we get to talk to each other. We get to hang out. That, that's an important part. And it's been nice because I've been going to these conferences and I've actually been getting to meet people who have been commenting on my videos and jumping in and live chats and those things for years. And so it's been really cool to, to, to kind of see that community, not just online, but actually in person as well. Uh, Joshua B, uh, BB for $9.99. Uh, service guarantees uh, citizenship republic is the best form of government for Anglo peoples as it allows for individual social mobility and promotes the self-reliance and warrior culture that comes most naturally. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people get, uh, you know, get their knickers in a twist about uh, Starship Troopers. But yeah, no, that's just a great, that's just a great answer to this question. And again, this is part of what Joseph Demaster says about the natural aristocracy. The natural aristocracy will come from people uh, often who have the physical uh, ability to fight, have, a, you know, they, they have earned the right of their position in the aristocracy through combat, the aristocracy in most civilizations was a martial class at some point. And so this is a very natural way for Anglo people, yes, but for many others to kind of to kind of have this. And so you can have a form of republic in which the aristocracy naturally assembles itself under military service. And I say this as somebody who does not have any military service under belt. So I, I get it. Like I would I would not be qualified to 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 you know kind of kind of put this in. But I, I honestly think that that is a, a pretty solid a way to organize a civilization. Um, if you don't have that, you need to have something like it uh, because our current system, uh, it, you know, it's it's like the, uh, the the people who have to be begged in uh, Athens to go vote. Uh, what, why would you want those people to be part of, of your ruling class? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it just illustrates exactly what sort of Demeister said. Each different group of people, each different region is going to have a form of government that is perfectly in line to the characteristics and um, I guess, blood or hereditary nature of those people. And sadly, we've sort of just universalized that, uh, especially in the West, towards all. And I think it's been a great disservice to both the nations of Europe as well as the people of the United States. Joshua, again, here for $1.99. Are you familiar with min-maxing of John Rawls? So I don't know if that's a it's a joke or if you're making a specific reference. I'm very familiar with John Rawls. Uh, I've, I've uh, read John Rawls. I've read critiques of John Rawls. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with most of John Rawls. So I'm familiar with uh, a lot of his, you know, kind of abstract concepts and the way that he he wants to update liberalism. Uh, there's there's kind of that joke in modern philosophy, you know, all of all of philosophy was a footnote to Plato and all of modern philosophy is a footnote to John Rawls. Um, that's pretty sad, but it, it is it is the way that he is often seen in, in kind of the modern philosophical academy. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know how many people are trying to min-max John Rawls, perhaps this administration or just general American democracy, but uh, min-maxing min builds are glass cannons. Uh, as soon as something comes their way, they break. That's an excellent transition there, yes. Uh, Matt uh, Gritier here for $199, just another one that's a donation, no super chat, but thank you very much, man. I really appreciate that. All right, guys, well, we are going to go ahead and wrap it up. I thank everybody so much for coming by. Had a lot of great comments and questions. Of course, want to thank the Prudentialists for coming on. Excellent co-host, always there to help me with the political theory and other episodes. Make sure that you're checking out all of his work. And of course, guys, if this is your first time here, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, check out The Orrin McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.